Morning. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Genesis first book, Exodus second book. The chapter numbers are the large numbers, the verse numbers are the small numbers. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Hey kids, uh, if you got one of these sermon note cards for children, uh, I want you to come up after the service, right after everything is done, and I want you to come show me what you wrote in your notes, okay? So who's the preacher? Some handsome guy, right? What's the main passage? What testament are we in? Maybe even draw a picture of what you heard in the sermon today. I'm going to be standing right here waiting for you right after we're done with our service. And it better be good. This morning's text is going to be from Exodus chapter 2. We're going to start... um, Excuse me, Exodus chapter 1. Wow. We're going to start poorly. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Follow along with me as I read aloud. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, therefore, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and at all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it is still speaking to us today. Amen? Uh, I'm just, anybody here have any water? Water for a preacher. Now we got it taken care of. When you come to this morning's text, this little bit of history, you can 
you can read it through any number of different lenses, right? So you could read this through the social lens. Sociologists like to talk and think about how societies work, what makes people tick when they come together. And this morning's text offers an interesting case study for sociologists, right? How do societies act, for example, when they feel the threat of foreign displacement in the land? In verse 9, you can see this clearly. Look at verse 9 again. Right? And he said to his people, his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many. Right? So it's a us versus them. It's, it's, it's our people versus those people. So that, that's one angle. Or you can consider this angle. Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill the sons of Israel. Only the sons of Israel. Why only the sons of Israel? Well, presumably so that the daughters can be intermarried into the Egyptian uh, world so that those worlds will uh, mesh, they will assimilate, and then they will be one. That's the sociological lens. You can also look at this story through a political lens. So consider this angle. Pharaoh, like Nero after him and like Hitler after him, needs to find an enemy within the gates onto which he can focus the people's political animus for his own xenophobic purposes. Thank you, Will. Look at that servant, huh? Come on. And if you're asking, asking, what does xenophobia mean? It's the sugar-free sweetener and gum? No. Or, that one will hit you a few minutes from now. Or maybe you could take this angle. The new pharaoh needs to solidify his legacy. He needs to separate his rule and his reign from that of his predecessors, right? He needs to be his own pharaoh. He needs to carve out his own legacy. So yesterday's policies aren't going to be today's policies, and yesterday's alliances aren't going to be today's alliances, that kind of thing. Or you could read this story through the military lens, The Israelites were settled primarily in the land of Goshen, which is in the northeast region of Egypt, which many commentators think was a militarily significant location. So Pharaoh could be trying to to enslave them in order to protect that portion of the land. Or you could look at the story through the economic lens, maybe the classical Marxist lens, right? So if that's the case, then Egypt would be the bourgeoisie and Israel would be the proletariat class struggling for their economic emancipation. You could also look at the story through the psychological lens. The, the 48 Laws of Power, mm, a terrible book, uh, but very popular uh, a pop psychology book, rule number one in the 48 Laws of Power is this. Don't ever outshine your superiors. If you're a guest at the party, you don't outshine the host of the party. And, and that's what Israel is. They are a guest in the house of Pharaoh, in the house of Egypt. And in verse 7 and in verse 9, we see that one of the reasons why Pharaoh begins to persecute the people of God is because they've literally become too great, too strong. They're outshining their host. And so Pharaoh perhaps psychologically feels threatened. You could read the story through any number of different lenses. But there's one lens in particular through which you are not normally allowed to interpret history, especially 
in academia, and that is the spiritual lens. And it makes sense. It makes sense if you believe in a materialist universe, right? There's nothing here but atoms. That you should not be able to interpret history through the lens of the spiritual, right? Because really we're all just a bunch of atoms crashing around into one another, forming random random patterns to which we may naively assign meaning where there is none. Now, this might be the part of the sermon where you would expect me to go into a full frontal attack, you know, wage war on that view. But I'm not going to do that this morning because I don't really have to do that this morning because I know that deep down in your bones and in the bones of every human being that's ever lived, that view just does not resonate. No one in their soul views the story of their own life Their own relationships, their own joy, their own pain, their own suffering, they don't view that story, that history, as meaningless, random, and purposeless. There is something that is happening in history that we all intuitively know goes deeper than quarks and atoms and gluons. There is something about the unfolding drama of this thing that we call history that pulsates. It pulsates with life and meaning and purpose at a level that goes deeper than this material world. There's something undeniably spiritual happening in history. Therefore, what I want us to see for the rest of our time together is that the true conflict of this story and the true conflict of every story, including your story, is spiritual in nature. Right? It's not primarily economic or political or psychological. It is spiritual. So let me pray and ask for help, and then we will jump in. God, this, this prayer is not perfunctory, just because that's what we do when we preach. I'm in desperate need. Your people are in desperate need. There is a war happening even in this room. There is spiritual conflict. But we trust that your Holy Spirit, who has secured for us such a great salvation in Christ Jesus, will be with us today, defending and confirming the gospel, strengthening us by the truths therein. And so we are ready and eager to receive from you, God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Point number one, the first spiritual element of this story is the blindness of Pharaoh. The blindness of Pharaoh. Look at verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That phrase, did not know Joseph, is pretty startling. If it's not startling to you, it's probably just because you need a refresher on the story of Joseph. So let's just do that, right? Remember, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Israel, and he was sold into slavery by his brother. And through a a series of providential events, Joseph ended up in Egypt. And, And through more providential events, God used Joseph to save Egypt, particularly as he was brought into Pharaoh's household He was used to save Egypt from perishing during a terrible, horrendous famine. Therefore, Joseph and his Hebrew family found favor in Egypt. His people were a blessing to the land, 
a blessing to the people of Egypt, a blessing to the administration in Egypt. Which means that it's, it is jarring that when you come here and you open up the book of Exodus and you get into the story, that we find Moses telling us not only that Joseph is dead, but that this new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. Now, we have to make sure we're clear on what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that like this Pharaoh just didn't get a chance to meet Joseph before Joseph died, right? That's not what he means. He also doesn't mean like this new Pharaoh just is unacquainted with the history of his own nation and empire. Like, oh, there was that big famine, and I don't know how we made it through there. No, he knows. Joseph and the Hebrews, their history in that land is well known to this Pharaoh. So what is Moses saying? Moses is saying that Pharaoh is blind, willfully blind, to the blessing of God through the ministry of Joseph in the land of Egypt. And and you can see that because there's going to be a pattern of this not knowing language that's going to come up again and again in the earlier parts of the book of Exodus. This is actually a foreshadow of one of the main I don't know statements from chapter 5 where there's this massive showdown between Pharaoh and Yahweh. But let me just let me just read it for you now. Uh, just one verse, Exodus chapter 5 verse 2. But Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go?" I do not know Yahweh. You see? The point that Moses is making is that the Pharaoh is blind, willfully blind. What the Pharaoh should have seen as a blessing with the Israelites in his land, he saw as a curse. What he should have called good, he called evil. What he should have welcomed, he feared and felt threatened by. The thing that should have drawn him into the life and love of God and his people caused him to rage against God and try to kill God's people. What should have been a present, excuse me, a pleasant aroma of life became in the nostrils of Pharaoh the stench of death. So Pharaoh is not just economically incentivized to persecute God's people. He is not politically motivated to kill God's people. He is not historically ignorant of the reality of God's people. He is hostile towards God and his people. Another way of saying this is that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Brothers, this is just a quick application point. This should be a lesson to you. If you think that if you can only show people the blessings of God, if you can only do good to them, if you can only bring them into the sweet aroma of life that you know it, life with Jesus, if you think that just by having that contact with you, people will come to know and love Jesus, you should be disabused of that view. The Lord sovereignly determines who comes to him. You can bring people fully into the life and blessing of God, just the fruit and multiplication just abounding all around them. And it may do absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, it may only serve to harden their hearts. The second spiritual element of this story is the war on God. The war on God. So here in point two, I I simply want to show you that, that this story is not fundamentally a conflict between the Egyptians 
and the Israelites. It is a conflict between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Pharaoh stirs up the Egyptians against the Israelites, but that's not the fundamental conflict. It's not also fundamentally a conflict between Pharaoh and the Israelites. There is a conflict between them, but that's not the fundamental conflict. It's not even fundamentally a conflict between Pharaoh and the midwives, although they are going to clash. No, this story is fundamentally a conflict between Satan and God. That may seem weird to you because you don't see the word Satan or the devil or anything like that in the text this morning. So where am I getting this from? Well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to show you. I'm going to have to build a little bit. Let me, let me start by telling you this. As we progress through the book of Exodus, you're going to see that Pharaoh, right? He's the black hat of this story. He's the bad guy of the story. <clears throat> he is pictured as a serpent, as a dragon. Now that imagery is hugely significant because as you go throughout scripture and you encounter this battle between light and dark, good and evil, God and Satan, you, you often find it pictured as a war between God and the serpent, God and the dragon. And this starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In the curse in the garden, we read these words, directed as a curse towards the serpent. I will put enmity, which is hostility, warfare. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I'm not going to unpack that verse fully, but what I want to show you is that this verse sets off one of the main thematic dramas of Scripture, the conflict between the enemy of God and the children of God, between Satan and the Savior, between the serpent and the serpent crusher. And so as we move into Exodus, what we find is that this enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman is on full display, right? Pharaoh, the serpent, is trying to kill the children of Abraham. He's trying to snuff out the seed. Now, let me get ahead of a potential objection. You may be saying, well, Sean, you merely told us that Pharaoh is a serpent. You didn't really demonstrate it. You didn't really prove it from Scripture, to which I would say, ooh, I'm so glad you're thinking like that. You should always have to show your work, right? We always got to show it from the Scripture this is a little tricky. I, there's a passage that's coming later in the book of Exodus where I'm basically going to preach a whole sermon on this, and I don't want to kind of steal my own thunder from that sermon. But I can show you one place, one hint in this morning's text where Pharaoh shows himself already to be the serpent other than him trying to kill the seed of the woman. And it's in verse 10. In verse 10, the Pharaoh says... Let us deal shrewdly with the people. Let us deal shrewdly with the people. Another way of saying this is let us make ourselves wise over the people. This, friends, is Pharaoh showing his serpentine nature. Does this remind you? Does this language of being wise over the children of God remind you of anything else in Scripture? Maybe like the curse the fall back in Genesis 3, right? Do you remember how the certain was described back in Genesis 3? It says that he was crafty, 
right? It's the same idea. This is the modus operandi of the serpent. This is what he does. He tries to curse the people of God by bringing them under the spell of his own fallen wisdom. And that's exactly what Pharaoh is doing here in Exodus 1. He says, I'm going to be crafty. I'm going to be shrewd. I'm going to be cunning. He's using his fallen, sinful, corrupt wisdom to try to destroy the people of God. Let us deal shrewdly with them. This story is one battle among many between the serpent and the serpent crusher. Right? It's, it's one battle in a much larger war. Uh, while we're talking about warfare, we should probably stop here and address the question of the lying midwives. The lying midwives. Now you may be thinking, Sean, I didn't know the midwives lied. Oh, they most certainly did. And we're going to see it right here. But let's, let's remember what's happening here. Pharaoh told the midwives to kill the male Hebrew babies at birth, but the midwives refused, right? When, when they were kind of called into the sanctum and, and, and questioned by Pharaoh, uh, why didn't you obey me? The midwives, they said, oh, oh, we wanted to, Pharaoh, but man, those Hebrews are just so good at giving birth. You know, like we tried to get to them in time, but they're pitching fastballs, like, woo. That's what, let me just look at verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Friends, I've, I've read what the commentators have to say. A lot of them try to protect the reputation of the midwives and say, well, actually, maybe genetically there was something different about them, you know, robust uterus. I, maybe spiritually the blessing of God made it so that they just gave birth so much faster. You know, guys, we don't have to protect them from what they did. It was a lie, but it was a justified lie. Now, that's going to that's gonna throw a wrench in your system ethically a little bit, so let me try to unpack this. Let me try to unpack this. It is a little complicated. Uh, we're going to try to unpack a certain element of just war theory. I'm not going to go into that a lot, but let me just give you the principle. Deception is sometimes permissible in extreme ethical circumstances in a fallen world as a lesser of two evils. I'll say that again. Deception is sometimes permissible in extreme ethical circumstances in a fallen world as a lesser of two evils. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Right, a little bit. So lying is a form of deception, and generally speaking, 99.9999999% of times, uh, that deception is sinful. And, and I shouldn't have to prove this to you. You understand it intuitively. If, if you and I have a deal and I say, I'm going to sell you a widget for a dollar. And you, we say, great, we strike up a contract. One widget, one dollar. I come back to you and I actually say, well, the price has changed. The widget now costs $10. You'll say, that's not right. That's not fair. You've damaged our relationship. And then you get enough people in society doing that kind of thing. And the society is corrupt from the bottom up and everything is bad all the time. If you've only lived in the United States of America, you may not really understand what I'm talking about, but if you've ever lived in a second or third world nation, you will very much understand the damage that lying and dishonesty can do 
to a society. I'm not saying lies don't happen in the United States. I am just saying that we have less of it than most other places in the world. Why? Why is truth-telling so important? Because the world that God designed is built to run on truth because God is the God of truth. And yet, the reality is our world has fallen. It's corrupted by sin, right? And so what that means is that there are some extreme circumstances, like war, when it's necessary to choose the lesser evil in order to avoid the greater evil. So let me give you an example. If you are hiding Jews in your attic during World War II and an SS officer comes and knocks on your door and says, are you hiding Jews in your attic? You are not only morally free, but you probably should deceive that SS officer. You should say, no, we are not hiding Jews in the attic. That would be a lesser evil. And you're doing that in order to keep the Jews from being killed in a concentration camp, which would be the much greater evil. In this morning's story, the midwives deceived Pharaoh, a lesser evil, in order to prevent the mass genocide of Hebrew babies, a much greater evil. Uh, there's more that could be said about this. We, we know, for example, that in war, killing is not always murder. The same thing could be true. Deception is not always lying. You have a tank, you want to hide it, you put camo on top of the tank. You are trying to deceive people, and nevertheless, I don't think in doing that, you're breaking the ninth commandment. If you're thinking, well, Sean, you've really got my brain going, I have a lot more questions now than I did before we first began, great. You can come and talk to me or Russell or really any of the elders after this service, and we'd be happy to unpack that more for you. Maybe we'll try to put something in the Sixth Avenue standard as well, which I know everyone opens and reads, right? The newsletter? Wow. <laughs> wow. Hey, I like that y'all didn't even try to pretend. All right, that was a bit much. Now I really don't trust you. No. All right, point number three. The third evidence of spiritual warfare taking place in this text is the theme of city building. The theme of city building. Look at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So, pause, let's remember last week, a big part of understanding the Exodus story is remembering that it's really part two to the Genesis story. Last week, we talked about the way some of the themes of Exodus developed back in Genesis. We saw the dual themes of exile and Exodus developing there. Well, there's another dual theme from this morning's text that develops all the way back in Genesis. And it's the dual theme of pilgrim and city builder. Pilgrim and city builder. So let me just put it simply. In Genesis, you see that the pilgrims, those who are wandering, trust God as they wander outside of the garden. In contrast to that, the city builders, they trust in themselves, and so they try to make their home on earth. I'll just give you two examples of, of wicked city building. All the way back in Genesis 4, there's a contrast between Seth and Cain, right? The two brothers. I know you're thinking Cain and Abel, but there's another one, Seth, right? Seth trusted the Lord as he lived outside of the garden. He did not build a city, but Cain trusted in himself. Uh, 
he feared what people would do to him. Even though the Lord put a sign of protection on him and said, I will not allow anyone to hurt you, he did not trust the Lord. And so what did he do in response to his fear of people? He built a city, which is just a bunch of houses and buildings with a wall around it, right? He tried to protect himself, keep himself, save himself. A little bit later in the narrative, in Genesis 11, you find the theme of rebellion and city building most prominently in the Tower of Babel. You guys remember how that story goes, but let me just read one verse for you. Genesis 11, verse 4. Then these rebels said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, see, when you think about the Tower of Babel, you probably always think about the tower. You never really think about the city. But the city is just as much an evidence of their corruption and their rebellion as the tower is itself. The tower has to be built within the city. So with that brief framework, there's more that could be said, but we've got to keep going. We go back to Exodus 1, and what we find in this morning's text is that Pharaoh, the serpent, the, the enemy of God's people is in the line of Cain. And he's in the line of the rebels at Babel. Why? Because he is using the children of God as slaves to build cities for himself. Right? And in, in Genesis 11 it says, for the glory of their own name. Right? And that's exactly what the... That's what the Pharaoh's whole thing was. That's what Pharaoh's did. Right? Let me build this big old thing with a massive tomb and a golden jewel crusted thing because I want my legacy my name my glory to live on forever and so here we find Pharaoh using the Israelites to do just that and what's really incredible what's really ironic about this is Pharaoh says I'm going to use these Israelites to glorify my name (laughs) and he has no idea what's coming he has no idea what's coming God is going to completely flip that on its head Point number four, the fourth spiritual element of this story is the fear of God. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about something with you all that I don't talk about publicly very often. Um, n- not because I'm ashamed to or an embarrassed to. There's just not often a reason to, but this is as good a reason as any. When, uh, when I was a missionary, I had two very real very powerful, very obvious encounters with demons. And I want you to know what I felt in those moments. Here's our pastor, our fearless leader. I didn't didn't feel fearless in those moments. When I came into contact, what was to my, for the first time really, my, my, my observation, very clearly a demonic force, what I felt was afraid. And you may be thinking, well, yeah, demons, that's, that's very scary. And what did he look like? And we're not doing that right now. I want you to know, though, I would have felt the same way if I had come into contact with an angel. When you read in the Bible that people come into contact with the angel of the Lord, what happens? They fall on their face, terrified, as if dead, Right? The principle isn't you come into contact with a demon and it's dark and scary and you're afraid. The principle is sometimes God just sort of peels back the curtain of this physical material reality and he allows you to see certain spiritual things 
And it is terrifying. One of the major themes of this morning's text is the theme of fear. Pharaoh feared a threat to his rule and reign. The Israelites, they're getting, there's too many of them. They're too powerful. The Egyptians also feared. Now, Pharaoh stirred them up to that fear, but, but the Egyptians feared the Israelites. And they also feared Pharaoh, right? And that's what empowered their harsh treatment of the Israelites. Go back and look at verse 12. Like halfway through the verse, it says, And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Right? But then there's the midwives. Who did the midwives fear? Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So here's what I want you to see in this point. The thing that distinguishes the heroes and the villains in this morning story is not about bravery. It's about fear. What distinguishes the heroes and the villains in this morning story is where their fear is directed. Think about the position that the midwives were in, right? They could have feared Pharaoh, but they didn't. They feared Yahweh. They could have feared the demonic, but in fact, they feared the holy. They could have feared the serpent. And in some sense, I'm sure that they did, right? In some sense, they did, but they had a greater fear of the serpent crusher. They could fear the economic and political and social realities that they were facing, or they could see through all of that into the spiritual realities and fear the only thing or the only one worth fearing at all, namely God himself. Now, the the funny thing about fear is, how, how do I exhort you this morning to fear God above all else? It's weird because it's It's commanding an emotion, which, by the way, the Bible has no problem doing. You say, you can't command me to feel a certain way, except that God can and does command you to feel all kinds of ways. Do not be anxious. Rather rejoice. Those are emotions. But we do have to deal with the fact that fear is a visceral reality. So going back to my first encounter with the demonic, when I responded I did not formulate a response. I didn't think. I didn't plan. I didn't sit down and write a, you know, here's my five-point plan to deal with this. In the moment, my reaction was visceral. It was automatic. And what I did was I immediately just called on the name of Jesus for help. Well, Sean, that's so holy of you. I don't think so. I felt desperate. I didn't feel holy. I didn't feel brave. I think what happened in that moment was that, that scenario revealed who I fundamentally fear most. And that's exactly what we find here with the midwives, right? This situation revealed what they fundamentally feared most. Did they fear God? Did they fear the Egyptians? Or did they fear Pharaoh? And we know the answer. Many of us are going to be put in situations in our everyday lives that are going to be quite revealing, right? Who do we fear more? Do we fear the thoughts and opinions of our coworkers? Or do we fear the Lord? 
Do we fear our relatives and what they might say or what they might do, how they might make our lives difficult, or do we fear the Lord? Do we fear the mobs, the the cancellation, or do we fear showing up on the last day and finding out that, as a matter of fact, the disapproval of man meant nothing, and, and really the disapproval of God meant everything? Do we fear losing our jobs, becoming financially unstable, Do we fear losing the political power that we kind of only illusory actually have in an illusory fashion actually have in this life? Or do we fear being unfaithful to the Lord? Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You know, so much of our walk as Christians would be so much more simplified if we stopped trying to figure out every last little thing that we should say and do in any particular situation, and we spent more time getting to know God and fearing God. Because if we fear the Lord, then we will have wisdom. And if we have wisdom, whatever situation we're put into, we will know how to respond. Perfectly, no. But faithfully, yes. These midwives did not go through like a just war theory ethics class on how to respond to this threat from Pharaoh. They just knew God. They knew God. They feared God. And then when they were put in this incredibly complex situation, they just did what was faithful. Friends, fear is going to be a part of your life as long as you are in this body of death and as long as you live in this broken and fallen world. But here is some good news. Here's what God is telling you this morning. You don't have to be afraid. You don't, ultimately, you don't have to fear finances. You don't have to fear health stuff. You don't have to fear family stuff. You don't have to fear career stuff. You don't have to even fear death. If you fear the Lord, all those other fears just sort of, well, they don't disappear. I don't want to lie to you and say like, yeah, you know, I've been walking with the Lord and I've never been afraid of anyone or anything ever since I got saved. No, you do. You, you become afraid. You get afraid. You get anxious. You get nervous. You get worried. But when you fear God, it just somehow pushes all those fears to the periphery. And you walk in wisdom and faithfulness. Did you notice the way that Will prayed in our prayer this morning, in our pastoral prayer? He said, if Christ is resurrected from the grave, what do we have to be afraid of? Right? The, the, the deepest, most ultimate thing in your life that you have to fear is probably death. Unless Christ got up out of the grave. If Christ really did go to the cross, if he really did pay the price for our sins, then if God really did resurrect him, then that means that the promise that you will one day be resurrected is true. So you don't have to be afraid of death. And you don't have to be afraid of anything else. Think about a little girl at home with her father. What does that little girl have to be afraid of? Does she have to be afraid of running out of food? No, dad's not going to let that happen. Does she have to be an intruder? Does she have to be afraid of an intruder? No, right? Nobody can beat up my dad. He's the biggest, he's the toughest, he's the strongest. When a child fears her father, she doesn't have to fear anyone or anything else. And even when she does fear Maybe this little girl on the playground. What does she do? She runs to her dad. She says, Dad, I need you to take care of this. Why? Because she knows dad is more powerful than anything she may be facing. 
Now, this, this illustration obviously fails us at some point because eventually children grow up and we learn that our dads are not the biggest or the strongest or the fastest or the smartest or the most holy, present company excluded. My, my daughters will never change their mind about that. No, no, all children eventually learn that their fathers are human. They're broken, they're sinful. But that's the thing about God, isn't it? He's not. He is the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest, the most holy, the most beautiful, the most perfectly good and powerful thing in the universe. There's no problem he can't solve. There's no need he can't meet. There's no enemy he can't conquer. Not even Pharaoh, especially Pharaoh. And he loves us. He's adopted us into his family. We were orphans by our own choice, by our own sin. We fled from the household of God. He calls us back to himself. He says, I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to bring you into my home. I am going to be your God. You're going to be my child. I'm going to protect you and keep you and resurrect you. He tells you the same thing he told Abraham. Genesis 15, fear not, for I am your shield. Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Listen, David understood this. Listen to the way he talks in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The valley of the shadow of death is a picture of the deepest, darkest, scariest, broken, most broken place that any human being could ever go. It's pointing to the ultimate reality of death that we are all facing. And apart from Christ, there is no hope. But if Christ is with us, if God is with us, we can have a life free from fear. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. If you're sitting here thinking, well, now I feel like a bad Christian because you're saying that I'm not supposed to be afraid, but I very am often afraid. Listen to the psalmist. He delivered me from my fears. Fear is going to be a part of your life. What you're looking for from God is not to completely deliver you from fear in this life. You're, you're asking him to deliver you ultimately in your heart, first of all, and then when you go to be with the Lord. Listen to what Joshua says, or excuse me, what the Lord says to Joshua as he stands at the edge of the promised land. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, Cain built his city because he was afraid. Pharaoh oppressed the Israelites because he was afraid. The Egyptians participated in this oppression of the Israelites because they were afraid the politician had made the puppets dance. They were afraid of what might happen. When you fear the wrong people and the wrong things, it leads you more quickly than ever to the path of evil. But if you fear God, it leads you down the path of righteousness and holiness. Listen to how Jesus addresses this theme in his ministry. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, like Pharaoh. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is the kind of fear that the midwives had. 
And you know what? This is why their names are recorded for us in Scripture. But the name of this Pharaoh is lost to history. Praise God for the bravery of these midwives. Praise God that their fear was directed in the right way. And it is my prayer that all the women of Sixth Avenue Community Church are imitators of these midwives, that they will fear God above all else. Fifth point. Can you do that? Five points in a sermon? We're doing it. The fifth spiritual element of this story is the blessing of God. If you go back later and you look at verse 7, you'll see that there's the five-fold language of blessing for the Israelites. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. They're filling the land, yada, yada, yada. Then when you come to verses 13 through 14, you see a five-fold language of suffering and oppression. Just go there. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here's what I want you to see in point five. Israel's blessing came through their oppression. Israel's blessing came. That's exactly what it says in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The word oppress simply means to bring low. And what we find here is that in an earthly sense, although Pharaoh was succeeding psychologically, sociologically, politically, right? Even though he was in an earthly sense succeeding in oppressing, bringing low the people of God, in the most important sense, in the spiritual sense, he could not stop the blessing of God. The more he oppressed them, the more they increased. The more he tried to kill them, the more they multiplied, right? The more he tried to destroy them, the more life was produced in the land of death that is Egypt. You have to know, brothers and sisters, that the same thing that was true of God's people then is true of you today. The more that Satan is trying to oppress you and stop you and hinder you and harm you and oppress you, the more he's doing that, the less he is succeeding. That does not mean that your bank account will not take a hit. That does not mean that your health may not fail you. That does not mean that there will not be strifes and quarrels. Of course there will be. There will be all kinds of earthly consequences to this warfare. But the the thing that really matters, the spiritual reality, God's blessing is invincible. It's invincible. We have to stop here and consider a really important theological principle, which is so often people think, and this is one of the lies of the prosperity gospel, People think, if God is going to bless me, then it's going to bring peace to my life. If God is going to bless me, it's going to be, well, okay, maybe, yeah, that's true in an ultimate sense. Like one day we're going to be in heaven together and we're going to be enjoying God and it's going to be peace forever and ever and no one will ever be able to stop it. But in this life, like immediate peace, not only is that not true, it's the exact opposite of what the witness of scripture is over and over and over again. I mean, I don't know how we miss it. Scripture falls down all over itself to say, actually, no, if you follow me, things are going to be hard. God says, if you follow me, there's going to be stress and difficulty, right? Not immediate peace, but conflict. Not immediate rest, but wrestling. 
Not immediate exaltation, but oppression. Let me just read the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And right there, for some people, that's enough. They're not going to follow Jesus. You can take whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But I'm not going to let you drive a wedge between me and my children. And then Jesus says, he gets out ahead of that. He says, whoever loves father or mother or children more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross, which is a symbol of death and pain and suffering, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. It's built into the promise. For my name's sake, you will be hated. The servant is not greater than his master. I am sending you out like sheep amongst the wolves. Think about the Apostle Paul. What a tremendous blessing. He was out killing Christians, persecuting the church. On his way to hell, God comes, saves him, gets him discipled up. Now he's an apostle. He's serving the Lord. The blessings are coming fast, just like this. We are like sheep before the slaughter. Paul says, I face death every day. It seems to me that God has displayed us apostles, who we might think are the most blessed ones, right? Ooh, apostles. They have the title. They have the preeminence. He has placed us at the end of the procession like prisoners appointed for death. And you know what happens at the end of the procession? You have to walk through all of the waste and filth from the animals that came before you. Paul says this is the position that God has given us as his blessing. Now, you may be thinking, gee, Sean, this is kind of like the worst evangelism offer ever, right? It, follow Jesus and your life will become much more difficult. Who's ready to sign up? Friends, these, are, these aren't my words. That's the craziest thing that happens sometimes. You just read the Bible and people go, that's too much. That's too hard. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you better sit down and count the cost. Because it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. And then you walk through the Gospel of John and you see all these people. Jesus comes to town. He's doing miracles. He's giving out blessings. A healing for you. A healing for you. And then he says these really hard things and he calls them to suffer. And they all just abandon him. They all just spread out. They disperse. They don't want to have anything to do with him until finally at the end they're there ready to kill him. And if that was where the story ended, we would never call it the good news of the gospel, right? But the thing is, the true blessings of God, yes, they will bring suffering in this world because this world is under the curse of Satan. How can it be any other way? If you are sane in a world full of people that are crazy, people are going to call you crazy. 
If you're blessed in a world that's full of curse, you're going to suffer because of that. It's a conflict. There's no way around that friction. But the promise of the gospel is this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The midwives believe this. The prophets of old believe this. The apostles believe this. The martyrs believe this. Jesus believe this. Why else would he go to the cross and suffer the wrath of Father of the Father for our sins? Because he believed this. There's a glory coming on the other side of that suffering. So members, visitors, my question for you is do you believe this? Now as we as we close, I hope I have been able to show you that this story really is a story of spiritual warfare yes of course there are economic and social and political and psychological realities at work nobody's denying that but this story is fundamentally a story of spiritual realities and I want you to consider the way that what that means for your life what it means for your life is that your story is fundamentally a story about spiritual realities and maybe you can't see that because you live in such a disenchanted world Right? You live in a world where the narration you are being told about your story is that you can never interpret it through the spiritual lens. But you have to know better than that. You have to know better than that. So, for example, when you encounter political, economic, and spirit, uh, social forces trying to normalize the, the murder of infants in the womb in our country... You can look at that phenomenon, you can say, yes, all those factors are at play, but we know that underneath that, there is a deeper spiritual reality. The serpent is still trying to kill babies. Hopefully you believe what Ephesians 6 tells us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You are being told the story of a disenchanted world, but the Bible says this world is full of spiritual activity, holy and evil at the same time. You are not just, your story is not part of a bunch of other randomly disconnected stories. Your story is part of this story and your story is part of the Jesus story. And so as, as we move through the book of Exodus, I'm going to try to show you that every element in this incredible story is pointing forward to Jesus, the author and finisher of the story. So let me just real quick run through the themes of this morning's text. Pharaoh was blind, but Jesus came to give sight to the blind, which is the only reason that any person here can see the glory of Christ, can see it at all. Friends, believe it or not, you're probably not the midwives in this story. You're probably Pharaoh. Blind, hard-hearted, angry, hostile, at war with God. But then Jesus came and gave you sight. In this story, the people of God are oppressed and enslaved. But do you remember what Jesus did when he stood up in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue? He says this, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to give liberty to those who are oppressed. In this story, the serpent of Egypt, Pharaoh, is trying to kill the seed of the woman. He's trying to stop the story of salvation cold, but it doesn't work. Why? Because later in the Bible story, there will be another woman and there will be another seed. 
And Herod, another iteration of the serpent, will try to kill that seed, but he can't do it. Why? Because the blessings of God cannot be stopped. The seed will be born. He will live a perfectly righteous life for us. And on the cross, he will crush the head of the serpent. Listen to this from Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish the Leviathan, that fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea of death. In this morning's story, Pharaoh exalts his own name through building his own cities. But Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to replace these earthly fallen cities with my new heavenly garden city. And I'm not going to do it by building this city up to the heavens. No, I'm going to bring my garden city down to the earth. So the note that I want us to end on, friends, is a note of victory. Because as you read the story of Exodus, sometimes it feels so dark and it feels so hopeless. And and you feel, you empathize with the people of God and they're suffering and they're yearning for help and they're crying out for salvation. And it feels like, how long, O Lord? Then you think about that in terms of your story and you think, how long, O Lord? But friends, the story has already been written. The end has been decided. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story. He wins. The church wins. And if you are in him, you win. So let all condemnation cease. Let guilt have no more claim. Let the devil, that serpent, lose all dominion. For the Lamb of God, he came. And the Lamb of God was slain. And the Lamb of God was raised. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have eyes of faith to believe this in our weakest, lowest, most fearful moments. In the name of Jesus, the serpent crusher, we pray. Amen.